1: Before you mash that fast forward button to move to the beginning of today's episode, I'd like to quickly tell you about some ways you can support the show and everything that I'm doing right now. You can support the show on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash Writer. Again, just go on over to patreon.com slash Writer. Become a patron for as little as $5 a month, or you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts and leave a rating and a review. It's incredibly important with the way iTunes works, so if you have a second, please leave a rating and or review and subscribe on iTunes. Uh, you can listen to the show on Spotify, tune in radio, Stitcher, Google play, and wherever else you get your podcasts. You can check out chase Thomas That is all my previous episode, a link to my newsletter and all my articles that I've written. Uh, you can also follow me on Twitter at chase double underscore thomas you can like the facebook page at facebook.com slash chase thomas writer or you can just tell a friend you found this independent sports podcast that they should check out too thank you for listening you're all the best and i think we've reached the point in this intro where my uncle darren can play me in all right let's go chase thomas podcast. the chase thomas podcast
2: (laughs) Um, my nephew needs me to record see i hate i already hate it i hate it
1: All right, on the line right now, Todd Vanderwerf of Vox.com, formerly of the AV Club, where I first started reading him, which I didn't realize was seven years ago when season five of The Sopranos was going on and everything. I mean, uh, when you were recapping it and reviewing it for the second time and everything else, um... You might be my biggest guest ever, and I've also uh-huh. been dying to talk about The Sopranos for a very long time on this podcast.
0: Well, I don't know about uh, biggest guest ever, but uh, thank you very much, and I'm I'm looking forward to talking about it with you.
1: So, you wrote about it. It's been a while. Have you thought about some of the stuff, or have you gone back to some of the stuff you had written about The Sopranos years and years ago?
0: Yeah, you know, it's kind of weird, because uh, about two years ago, I was trying to sell the recaps as a book. Uh so I went back and looked at a bunch of them and was like, here's the ones I'm gonna to have to rework, here's the ones I'm gonna to have to redo. But uh Alan Seppenwall and Matt Solar Sites are also doing a book about the Sopranos, which I look forward to reading, and that kind of was like, Well, we don't mm-hmm. the world does not need two Sopranos recap books. So uh I, I actually I don't know,
1: I think we do actually. I disagree. I actually do ended it. up I'll I
0: buy it. I ended up selling a book of uh about the X Files with uh Zach Hamlin, which is coming out this fall. So uh, that ended up being my my recap book I sold, but yeah, so I, I went back and looked at most of them about two years ago, and I was sort of in that process. And uh, they uh, of all the stuff I wrote at AV Club, they're by far the thing I get the most comments about, uh, it, which is kind of kind of crazy to me because uh, I think when we when we started them, we didn't know if anybody was going to read them, so.
1: So I'm re-watching it right now. I am midway through season five. And when I'm reading your recaps and everything else, I didn't realize when I watched the first time that season five was like the season two of The Wire for The Sopranos, where it was really divisive and people felt like it was just filler and it just didn't hit the same way other seasons did. And I was going through Vulture. They even had like the 10 best episodes of The Sopranos ever, and none of them featured an episode from season five. And I just... I was thinking about it and I, by on paper, I felt like it should have been like it had Steve Buscemi, who, by the way, now that I've seen Horace and Pete, I've realized that Steve Buscemi's character from The Sopranos is actually the same character in Horace and Pete just, <laughs> uh, 10 years later. Yeah. Uh, he's playing the same guy. It's just really sad and depressing and a guy who just like he was a king like 20, 30 years ago and it's just uh, a different time now. But why do you think? season five uh is just not really a beloved or uh just kind of a a season that people that resonated with a lot of people and people didn't really like it as much as other ones
0: that's kind of crazy to me that you're saying that because i've always thought season five was generally considered one of the more acclaimed ones um it's by far my favorite um that's I, what, okay,
1: because you mentioned that when you're in the rewatch with season um, in the 2011 articles, like that's something you talked about, and I was like, that's just really fascinating because I'm
0: right there with you. Right, right, right. I think from my mem- from my memory, when the show when the show was airing, season four was the super controversial one, and the first half of season six. But that's kind of a different matter because uh, mm-hmm. it's you know heading into the end of the show, people get worked up, et cetera. Um, but season four was the yeah. one where uh, originally David Chase had, this is all sort of rumored. I don't know how true it is, but originally, supposedly David Chase wanted to end the show after season four. He had a four season plan. So the first three seasons are all kind of full speed ahead. And then HBO's like, can you just keep going? And he's like, I guess I could do five <laughs> since season four yeah. kind of slows down. And he's like, I guess I'm gonna do six, and then six gets super expanded. So season five is kind of this standalone season, um, which is what I really like about it. It's got my favorite episode mm-hmm. of the show, uh, "Long Term Parking," which it's crazy to me that I was not on that vulture list because it's it's one of their yeah it's not on there strongest episodes. Um, but yeah, it's it be the, that
1: a lot of people were just kind of out? So. I, where are you with that? Because obviously if that's one of your favorites, then you must have been a big Adriana storyline fan because that was tough for me. I, I didn't, I just, I, I didn't feel bad for her. I, and I know that's like her like off screen death and everything, it was brutal and everything. And it was just really sad that Christopher ended up choosing Tony and the family over her and everything, but I don't know. Like, it's kind of like the Carmella situation, but on a smaller scale for me where right. like the Carmela stuff I thought was way more interesting and compelling and just the back and forth there. But like Adriana was just kind of her and Chris's relationship was just the, the, I don't want to say the poor man's version, but just kind of, I don't know. It just wasn't as compelling and as hitting for me. So I didn't really feel as bad when she ended up, Um, I, I guess, can we say spoilers for a show that ended uh, over a decade ago? Yeah. Um, <laughs> But I thought that was a great episode, but I just, I wasn't, 100% in on the Adriana FBI stuff.
0: You know, I really I really felt for her because she ended up being in an impossible situation. Uh, the Sopranos of all shows is probably the most... Of all the like great dramas is probably the one that's most constructed like a novel. And so I see her death as sort of foretelling kind of what happens in the end as more and more prominent characters start to die in the final season. She's kind of like this is a character who had no good choices who got kind of boxed into this uh decision that that ultimately cost her her life um i think she's a really pure tragic character in a way the show didn't always do i think it's worth noting also that this was the first season the show won the uh emmy for drama series and the sure. Ad- the adriana arc won both De mateo and michael imperioli uh supporting actor emmys um which is uh, like at the time, the Adriana arc was seen as like the best thing the Sopranos had ever done. So it, it kind of surprises me that like uh, some people apparently aren't as into it. Um, I think I think she's one of the most sympathetic characters the show ever did in terms of, yes, she knew what she was going into getting into mm-hmm. to some degree, but she was she had a lot of
1: outs with Chris. Cause I remember she, like the whole, like the domestic
0: abuse
1: and right. everything else. And she just, she overlooked a lot. And I, I don't know it. That was tough. Carmela's was just more complicated. Obviously the kids factor and everything else. And, I think she genuinely, I, I don't know. It maybe it was like screen time too, is we just get so much of Carmela and the way she's thinking in that situation right. versus Adriana. We see a lot of just her with Chris and those interactions of just it continually just being awful for her. Um, I will say the what really did hit me in that season, I, I don't know, do you remember when they're like the movie nights every week with Carmela and all yeah. the friends <laughs> uh coming over and just her just being so depressed at seeing what her future was? Yeah. Because they all like talked about the movie for like 30 seconds before they all just changed gears to just gossip- gossiping about other people and just their marriages and everything else and it was just like um just really uh, unfortunate for her cuz she just realized that was that was her future. Um, yeah, yeah. So from that instance I thought that was just really that was really well done.
0: I think that I I I would agree with that and I think that um I would say the uh the thing about that storyline is by the time adriana starts to realize yes she does want out of this life she's boxed in because the fbi has Mm -hmm. information on her she essentially has to now stay together with chris either until uh she's discovered well basically until she's discovered because there's really no way she's going to be a mole for the fbi for the rest of her life
1: um well then again there was a mobster who i'm blanking on his name who was just the who asked for who was the he had the i always forget his name but he had the child with ms and he asked for a raise um i think that was during the season where he yeah. um just gives them a little bit at here and there for the whole season they never figure it out that he's a mole so yes yeah. she could have gotten that maybe gone that far but that seemed like a outlier
0: it's it's definitely he's definitely an outlier like i mean if you think back to early in the show how quickly i sort of figure out big pussy um yeah it's it's pretty uncommon for an fbi informant to make it more than a couple of years so uh, and i think that they use adriana really well as a portent a portent of things to come uh, obviously you mm-hmm. haven't watched the final season but but the way they use her there and i won't spoil how that happens is... oh no
1: this is a rewatch i've watched okay. the whole show so I, I i'm doing it as rewatch much. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah 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 yeah
0: I figured as much, but but yeah, the way that she's used—I won't spoil it for the listeners—and the way that she's used throughout season six is really well done, Um, and uh, especially like as the show sort of gets into notions of the afterlife in season six. Mm -hmm.
1: I guess part of the reason season five also kind of bums me out is (laughs) just Tony. Blundetto just saying thanks and talking about living in it. Besides living in when when Tony uh, Soprano calls Tony when he's like just uh, like three o'clock in the morning asleep. And he's just like, well, outside of living in my mother's basement at whatever age, things are going pretty well and everything just like, what's up? Um, Super depressing. But uh, the most depressing thing for me was just the demise of Junior. And this is where it starts to really... like he'll just forget things, or repeat himself and all that kind of stuff early on and it just obviously gets worse from there and on out because Junior's my favorite character, maybe in any T V show ever, and his one liners will always be incredibly important to me and will always crack me up if I need to need a laugh. But him and Polly, I don't who would you say is a like had the better one liners, Polly or Junior in the series? Uh,
0: I probably I probably prefer Polly. Uh I I, okay. I, I certainly like Junior, um, and I, I get why he's a quote-unquote fan favorite. Uh, Really, though, uh, Livia is, uh, (laughs) is, I think, the funniest one. I love her, uh, her dark, her dark, uh, a say sense of humor, but the way she says things that, uh, she cracks me up. I don't know, man. Uh, I think, I think you have to come from that kind of family.
1: (laughs) Well, I mean, isn't that, wasn't that character based off, like, David Chase's mom?
0: Yes, and that's, like, the funniest thing about her.
1: (laughs) brutal um yeah so i guess that was part of it um i thought it was a really interesting tony season too because we've just been i was glad to kind of be away from tony with a different uh affair every season i'm glad they kind of moved away from that yeah And just kind of seeing him scramble with no women in his life and just how much he was coming apart and just trying to live with themselves and I, i just he got more depressing, but at the same time, it was just kind of interesting to see him in a different state where he just, he didn't have a base and just didn't know really where to go. And it was just, it was obvious that he was starting to really lose it. And, um, I thought that was, this might've been the most interesting Tony season for me.
0: Yeah. He's, uh, definitely like the character who gets, he has a really good arc in this season in a way that like, you look at um, some of the other seasons that precede this one, like season three, they really have to scramble because Nancy Marchand dies and they have to figure mm-hmm. out kind of on the fly, a way to tell Olivia's story without Livia. And they do it ultimately through, is it Gloria is the name of the character? Um, Annabella Shiar's character. Uh, she <sighs> kind of ends up being a stand-in for Livia. And then season four, like is, it definitely a season where they're kind of vamping for time in a way I find really interesting, but it like ends up being about the Soprano marriage and is more about those two characters together than it is about Tony separately. So season five, especially like he's out of the house. He's kind of like rummaging around like a bear. Uh, yeah, is ends up being which like,
1: obviously is kind of a metaphor because there is a bear in yeah. the season that's yeah rummaging around. That he
0: yeah. he ends it ends up being a really strong season for him and for James Gandolfini, and I think also for uh, Edie Falco though. Uh, it, it's yeah. probably one of the weaker Carmela seasons. Like there's not a ton she gets to do, but. I mean, Carmella is such a compelling character. I thought she character. was more
1: likable in this season because I was really frustrated with her and I thought there were uh, the people in her life who were telling her, well, it's just, you can't really complain because you do love the money. You love the house. You love the lifestyle. You love all of this. So you can't, you, you know what you're getting into. You, you right. like some of the perks, but you don't like the others. That's why I thought her character was so compelling is just that back and forth because she had so much guilt. And at the same time, there was just... <sighs> that's what i i mean david chase wanted it to be gray like there's yeah. good and bad and everyone but this season though and i think this brings it back to tony is like i don't think there was much gray with tony like they finally i think you actually wrote about this in one of your recaps of just like they actually use the s word with him that yeah the sociopath yeah and there is no gray like tony soprano is <laughs> he is bad and you want you're supposed to hate him it's kind of like when in breaking bad they come to they like are making it very clear um Vincent Gilligan, or uh, I'm already blanking. On his, am I? Is that his name? Vince I, Gilligan, yeah. Vince Gilligan. Okay, it didn't sound right as I was saying, and I was like, yeah. oh, that is the right name. It, uh, it's just been a while. Um, yeah, just like making it obvious. Walter White is not a sympathetic figure. You should not still be rooting for him at this point. And I think that's where season five you're starting to get to that point where like Tony Soprano is just not a good guy it's time to move on. He's not a simple, he's not going to change. It's that same conversation that Melfi's having with her own therapist, where it's just like, he's, this is who he is. Like it's not, the therapy is not going to work.
0: Yeah. I think that's, I think the Sopranos pushes a little too far in that direction, especially in season six. I don't think it's, it's a huge flaw or anything like that, but definitely like uh, the Tony Soprano as a sociopath thing. I think lets Melfi off the hook a little bit in a way where David Chase is clearly trying to tweak the audience. Like one of the things Mm -hmm. I think is interesting about season five is this is it's not the first season after the show had become a huge hit, but it's definitely the season that is most David Chase trying to push back against the hardest of the hardcore fans. Like Tony Blundetto is like, you think, gangsters are cool well here's Tony (laughs) who's nothing (laughs) like that like it's definitely a season in conversation with the audience in a way that uh, you know some seasons push too far in that direction some seasons maybe didn't Mm -hmm. understand it well enough like I know some people are really critical of season three which is a season I like because it buys a little bit too much into the myth of these guys being cool guys Um, Mm -hmm. but David Chase was always like I think kind of appalled by how much people took to Tony Um, and I, you find that a lot of the time with the people who created these anti-hero shows where they're kind of like, just a little horrified by how much people love these main characters and how much they want to, uh, identify with them. Like you can go all the way back to Norman Lear on all in the family to like find kind of the first example of that. Like how many people watched Archie Bunker and thought, Oh, Archie Bunker is, is speaks for me. And like Norman Lear was just horrified by that, but like, you can't control the audience reaction. In, in a situation like that. And uh, David Chase really tries to, and I think that's an interesting struggle.
1: Which season did you enjoy
0: writing about most? Uh, I don't remember. Probably se- probably season 5. Um okay. I I liked some like I I liked writing about the show throughout. I think I, I think my mm-hmm. recaps got better when I was doing one episode at a time. Uh the first couple seasons I did two at a time, which was fine, but uh, I think that it got better once I, I switched to doing one at a time. Um, mm-hmm. I remember like uh, at the time I was writing them, there were a lot of commenters who were very upset with the way I covered the show. <laughs> and I don't really? quite remember why, but like, uh, there would be like um, complaints about that. I was talking too much about like, I think there was a desire to have it be a little bit more about the plotting of the show, but I felt like the show had been on for so had been off the air for so long at that point that like nobody was going to be helped by me talking about like what the plot of the Sopranos was. So I I, I tended to delve more into filmmaking and themes and things like that. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that occasionally I would go on tangents that irritated some of those people, but uh, I think (laughs) by season five, I had found a way to kind of uh, talk about the plot, but also uh, do some of the thematic tangents I enjoyed. I actually really, I actually really did also enjoy reviewing the last nine episodes which I kind of count separately um i think there's some strong writing in that in that stretch but yeah it was it was definitely a thing where uh uh, i would i would go through a season and it would just be overwhelming um like i remember when i reviewed uh i think it was the episode remember when from the last nine it was the day after the 2012 election and like Mm -hmm. it was supposed to go up at noon central or whatever time it was they posted on wednesdays and like I had stayed up all night watching election coverage and it got to be like 8 a.m. And I was like, I got to write this Sopranos thing. So like, like I, I just remember that um, that whole period was writing Sopranos took a lot out of me. Um, I, I'm traditionally a pretty fast writer, um, but writing about the Sopranos ended up being, you know, every, it was at least a couple hours every time I did it um, and sometimes more. So uh, like I would take breaks between seasons. I think I reviewed um the office in between seasons at one point, the UK original. And I reviewed, um, mm-hmm. uh, carnival, which is a good show, but like not a show that I think necessarily holds up to reviewing episode by episode. Okay. Um, uh, but yeah, I, 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 it was one of those things where doing it took a lot out of me and I, I ended up, uh, kind of, I was glad when it was done, even though I was also really glad to have done it.
1: Yeah. Well, you had a line that I, that I pulled, um, in all of my readings of your stuff. And I thought it was really good. And it's just like this huge issue. And it kind of goes with the wire and all the best shows ever. It feels like where you said the question of season five in this episode, I believe this was uh, an episode two recap. So it was the one right after the two Tonys. Okay. Um, I don't remember the name of that one though, but it was like, and then is whether these characters can escape the traps they're caught in. And I really like that because it really does. we've touched on this on, on this podcast is just like, that's one of the things I, I've always found so interesting about the Sopranos and the wire and all of my favorite shows is that so many of these characters feel trapped and you just can't, even if some of them have done reprehensible things, a lot of them are just trapped and it's just like so many other factors playing into why they do what they do. But um, this season in particular, just everybody, it really does like Artie Bucco is even trapped because of the whole relationship with Tony and the loss of money and just like they're, Every character is just trapped in, in their own unique, tragic way, and I, I really like that line.
0: Yeah, I think that I, I, you're making me remember one of the things I really love about season uh, season five, which is that the episodes are a lot more standalone. Um, mm-hmm. Like there's the episode where they have to clean up the bodies on the old farm. Uh, that's one yes. I always think of in terms of like this is just uh-huh. kind of a one episode problem. Um, earlier episodes because there was like a big antagonist or, um, you know, a big girlfriend of the season, like they had these longer arcs. In season five, it's a little more, the arc is Tony and Carmela's marriage. Will it come back together? And like, that's not as dramatically sustaining as some of these other things. So they do some really interesting, more standalone episode things. And I think that Chase thought he was going to get a lot more uh, mileage out of the old gangsters getting out of jail. Uh, mm-hmm. There's one played by, I want to say Robert Loja. I may have the actor mm-hmm. wrong, but he came in and like, it just, it didn't work in the way that they were hoping it would. The Tony Blondetto thing certainly runs throughout the whole season, but is not as big yeah. of a plot driver as say the face-off between uh, Tony and Ralphie in seasons three and four mm-hmm. or Tony and Carmela's... Or even like Tony and Richie,
1: April and everything. Like there's yeah. Yeah, it's just not as big.
0: Yeah. So like there just isn't as much meat there. And I think that that, led them to try some interesting things. So like the our story arcs end up being like Adriana, uh, Tony and Carmela, are they going to get back together? You know, there's like, it's just a lot of interesting stuff in this season. And it feels, it, to me, it feels like The Sopranos, the longer it ran, the more it skewed away from being a traditional narrative and more toward just sort of feeling like the random way that life does. And I think season five is the season that really strikes a balance between we're going to tell traditional stories, but also it's going to be just like a random collection of, of stuff. So uh, it, it felt like life to me.
1: Yeah, I think that's a good way of wrapping it up. But I do have one last question for okay. you and then we'll go. All right. Is Fourio still alive?
0: <laughs> yes. Uh,
1: I, yes. I,
0: okay. I, yes. I, I think uh, the Russians are still alive. Uh, Furo' is still alive. Everybody's still alive.
1: I don't think the Russian's alive.
0: I think he actually <laughs> he
1: died in the forest. I think I, that was actually one of those where he didn't make it. Cause that shot, like, I just can't get over. It looked like it hit him in the head. I, I just, it, the, I don't know. I think he's gone, but I think Furio is still out there. I hope he found his, his own Carmela back in Italy where,
0: or wherever he is. I think uh, I'm trying to remember, like there was some random event and like David Chase was just like, yes, the Russian's alive. and like, <laughs> every so often david chase will answer a question like that like this we we did a piece at vox where he told mm. uh, he told a reporter who he was friends with of course tony's still alive and like he meant it in a way that was like you're missing the bigger point of the question and she wrote a beautiful, yes. she wrote a beautiful essay about like him saying that to her but also like missing the bigger point of the question and literally all anybody took from it was David Chase's Tony Soprano is alive and he had to like issue a statement about how that's not what he meant. And like, it was uh, it's also like he
1: should have known. And also like you deliberately created an ending that was going to be like, I remember like, I wasn't watching the show live and just the reaction, mostly negative of people like really being upset about the going to black and everything else. Like, it, you made it, it like the whole point and I get what he's frustrated over. It's like, it's not about what happened to Tony at the end. It's a, it just, you have to end it some way. And like, we don't know, but life would have gone on and everything else. Like it was just time for the show
0: to end. I, I just, the, I don't know. The, Ameri- I the American impulse toward definitive endings, especially when it comes to television is something I find very frustrating. So uh yeah. I like, I love
1: it. It's frustrating for him too.
0: <laughs> I love the Sopranos episode. I love the Sopranos finale from the first and like, Uh, that, that jolt of feeling like your cable had gone out. It was brilliant. I loved it.
1: All right. Well, Todd, I, this has been a pleasure. I very much appreciate you taking the time tonight to uh, talk Sopranos
0: with me. It was great. Great, great fun.
1: All right. Well, we can read you. At vox.com or your critic at large. We can follow you on Twitter at t Um, what does that mean, by the way? When I first saw it, I wasn't hundred percent out. is it T-Vody? Is there something behind that?
0: Uh it's it's Tivodi is how I pronounce it. Uh, and it is okay. when I started my Twitter, it was before I had started reviewing TV professionally, like literally, mm-hmm. literally, I think a month before I got my first gig at the A V Club. But it stands for TV on the Internet, which was the name of uh, the name of a podcast I did with my wife for many years. The archives are now offline uh, because we (laughs) like the the sound quality is so terrible and like all this (laughs) other stuff. But like so it's it was tied to this podcast that no longer (laughs) exists. But I kind of like it because it's five letters and um, it's much easier to tell people than like go look at Todd Vanderwerf or whatever. Um, Mm -hmm. So. Yeah, it's uh TVOTI Tavodi. Uh, that's also my handle on Instagram, I believe. Uh so you can you can look for me on both platforms.
1: All right. Well, thank you so much. Go read if you have not already gone through Todd's Sopranos coverage. Go do that because it's fantastic and watch the Sopranos because it's one of the best shows ever made. Uh Todd, thank you so much and let's talk again soon.
0: Okay, for sure.
2: Thank you.
1: Thanks, Todd. Bye. Mm-hmm. All right, Josh Nelson is here right now. He is the host of the Sox Machine podcast, and Josh, I think there are more people on this podcast call right now than there were people at the
2: White Sox game today. <laughs> oh, probably. I hope so for your case, Chase. Uh, mm. I, I definitely hope so. Yeah, what a uh, what a strange turn of events happening in Chicago. I wake up, I take my eighth month, eight month old puppy Frankie. Named mm-hmm. after Frank Thomas. He's the little hurt. Oh, wow Uh he's a 17 pound corgi. And uh you have a Corgi. <laughs> named after Frank Thomas. I do. I do. That's amazing. And uh there was snow on the ground. And <laughs> uh, you know, it's like it's April 9th. I mean, everyone in Chicago's attitude right now, Chase, is come on, is it ever going to be spring? Are we done with winter? And no. You know, unfortunately for (laughs) Cubs fans, uh, you know, I always feel bad for those that buy opening day tickets because you got to take a sick day or you got to play hooky and you got to spend a lot of money for these tickets. Right. It's always a hot buy and Mm -hmm. it snows out and that sucks. And the Cubs are going to try to play tomorrow. Uh, The good news is there's a warm front moving in Chicago, so they should have no problems playing tomorrow. Their first game at Wrigley Field for the year. But what do you do, man? Do you take another vacation day? Do you take another sick day from work to go to the game? I don't know how you want to play that out. But, yeah, I mean, for the White Sox, though, they have the sod father, Roger um, Bossard, and, uh, you know, he, the you sod father. His nickname is the sod father. You can't just drop that in like that is common knowledge for
1: anyone outside of the South side of Chicago. I have no idea. But that's amazing nickname. But explain who is the sod
2: father. So the sod father, he is third generation of maintaining the field for the Chicago White Sox. OK, his grandfather was the first one at Old Comiskey Park that was across the street who maintained the field. And then his dad took over for his grandfather. And then Roger, uh, the sodfather father now, uh, took over shortly before the White Sox moved to their new location, which was New Comiskey and then U.S. Cellular Field and now Guaranteed Rate Field. Uh,
1: Was it called New Comiskey for a brief time? It was.
2: It was. Wow. It
1: was. You know what's weird? How I remember that is the change is... I remember playing the MLB video games growing up, and I remember being confused when I was playing as the White Sox um, in one of the videos, like from year to year, and being like, this is not the same park. What, what has happened? Did they get, like, this is like, I'm not like an, uh, I didn't have my laptop. We were not on our smartphones, and it was just, I was just not aware. And I remember being really flustered because I loved Comiskey and I loved the, I <laughs> do people call them the lollipop stuff? Like, what was that? Um. Oh, yeah, the the wheels, the spinning wheels. Yeah, loved them. I thought they were lollipops when I was really young. <laughs> and I was like, oh, that's cool. They just had these lollipops like flying up. It was kind of like the pre... Maybe that was like the blueprint for the Marlins new stadium where they were like, they <laughs> put the... Carnival in the outfield. Like they looked at old Comiskey and was like, oh, that's kind of cool. Because I will say, as a kid, I I enjoyed looking at that when I was
2: playing uh, MLB games. Yeah, the pinwheels. We actually incorporated the pinwheel into our logo at Sox Machine. I'm a big fan. The pinwheels are where the fireworks used to shoot off from the scoreboard. So whenever the Mm -hmm. White Sox hit a home run or whenever the White Sox win a game, they shoot off fireworks. Uh, which could be quite confusing for some folks that live in the South side of Chicago. And Oh my gosh, why are there fireworks? What's going on? Oh yeah, that's right. The white Sox must've hit a home run or the white Sox won the game. Uh, when they had the old scoreboard, that's where they used to shoot off from the scoreboard. Uh, gotcha. Now they, they don't shoot off because they're digital pinwheels and the white Sox can do very cool stuff with them. But yeah, that, that goes all the way back to old Comiskey and I love it. It's, that's why we incorporate it into the logo. It does make it unique, uh, especially for White Sox fans. Because obviously for Cubs fans, they have the Ivy, right? They have the yeah. Ivy and they have the Wrigley Field marquee. You know, for the White Sox, they got the pinwheels.
1: There you go. Well, you know what uh Sun Trust Park has? Parking? Nope, not even that. <laughs> has nothing. Because there's nothing about it that just like reminds you of Atlanta, of any like it's I've been it's a better park than Turner there are better seats you feel closer it's more intimate uh all those things are positive i think but ultimately it's still just you look around you're like this is just like i I don't i don't know they took no chances and i just when you don't take any chances on just if you're gonna put that much money into something make it unique make it something special like do something like Mm -hmm. even though the mets like kind of went a weird route by honoring the Brooklyn Dodgers with uh, city field like city field still like whenever I go to New York and I see it and I go right by it's still just like, Oh, this is special and this is different and everything else. And it's just cool. But like they took zero chances with SunTrust park and it will still annoy me. So two things can be true. One, uh, it can be a pretty good place to watch a ball game. And two, also one of the most generic parks in existence.
2: And that's a bummer. Yeah.
1: Well, they'll only play there for, like, the next 50 years. Or, you know, with the way stadiums are going, it will be too old and outdated 20 years from now. So Exactly. um, Because they were only in Turner for about 20 years before they moved on. So, yeah, they'll change pretty soon. And speaking of, like, the cold weather stuff, like, I don't know uh, if you've been, like, just looking at all the games, especially this past weekend, there were, like, more baseball players wearing hoodies (laughs) under their uniforms (laughs) than I've ever seen. (laughs) Yeah, it's it's been a cold uh, start. It's been brutal. And it's just baseball should not be played in that kind of environment. It just, it's a bummer. But like the Rockies, uh, the Braves were in Colorado this weekend. And like it was delayed, I believe the Saturday game. Um, all these are blending together. Uh, I think it was Saturday afternoon. Yeah. Cause I think it was a four o'clock uh, first pitch. But anyway, um, it was like 28 degrees. Mm-hmm. And it was just, oh my God, we're playing baseball in 28 degree weather. This is, this is brutal. But uh, the Braves obviously won that game. But, um, Fun fun weekend and a fun start. I just wish it would get warmer everywhere.
2: Yes, I agree. It must get warmer everywhere.
1: <laughs> and, you know, do you know what a team that does not have to worry about being uh, red hot right now? The Los Angeles Angels, who have red uniforms. They have the two, maybe, you know, it's amazing. And I'm just, I'm really happy about it because <laughs> Mike Trout deserves mm-hmm. um, some more attention. And I think wish uh, Shohei Otani just being as good as he has been to start off like I think that brings more attention to Trout and those two just becoming superstars on this team for the next uh, couple of years at least depending on what Trout does with his free agency down the line but I, I do love that the Angels have another superstar and they have been able to fix what looked like a very frustrating Kevin Garnett Anthony Davis like run for Trout in Los Angeles where it was just the superstars just stuck in a bad situation with a bad team for the next couple of years. And it's just wasting his prime. But now new life, they made a bunch of great decisions this offseason. Justin Upton's still really good. They, uh, Ian Kinsler's in the mix now, but Otani like three home runs already. He's batting like over 300. He has two wins and he had Florida with a perfect game through six innings over the weekend. Like what a start for the angels and Otani.
2: It is a terrific start before the season began. I was making my 2018 predictions, and a lot of people went chalk, went with the same teams that made it the postseason last year in the American League. And what I noticed, Chase, is that since they have introduced the second wildcard team, at least three teams from the season before do not make it into the postseason in the American League. So pick three of the following five teams. Cleveland, the New York Yankees, the Boston Red Sox, the Houston Astros and the Minnesota Twins. The trend says three of those five won't make it to the postseason. Mm-hmm. And that's why I was pretty high on the Angels and I picked them to make it to the postseason. I think they will have a wild card spot behind the Houston Astros. I still have the Astros winning the American League West. But I do think that Shohei Otani, as you mentioned, was that shot to the arm for the Angels. But they just didn't stop when they won the Otani sweepstakes. They got Zach Kozart to play third base besides Simmons, which by the way, he's the best defensive shortstop in all of major league baseball. You mentioned yeah. Ian Kinsler and maybe getting Kinsler out of Detroit will give him a spark with whatever, how much energy he has left. I mean, he's still a terrific baseball player, even though he's older than 32 And you still have Albert Pujols, who's more of a DH, but maybe that could rejuvenate Albert Pujols, who is going to have a Hall of, he's going to be in the Hall of Fame, first ballot Hall of Famer, without a doubt. And is that enough to support Mike Trout? And can Mike Trout stay on the field? And can Otani pitch well enough to be another spark on the starting pitching front for the Angels? And right now, after the first week of the season, he is checking off all the boxes and For everyone that before the season began, listening to MLB radio, that Otani should start the year in double A. I thought that was absolutely crazy. I mean, it's just spring training. So what if he didn't pitch well? You won't really know what he has until he's in the major leagues. Man, don't those people look stupid right now. I mean he's Jeff got Jeff already wrote a column apologizing. <laughs> and you know, Jeff should. I mean, yeah. it, you know, you jumped, you jumped the gun, and all he's done is just impressed. I when you watch him start that start against Oakland. I mean, Chase, he's hitting the outside corner against left-handed batters. He's throwing 99 mile per hour fastballs right on the outside corner for strike yeah. one. And then he has this slider. Or the split finger action that just sinks. People love the splitter. Just It disappears for left-handed hitters. I don't know how left-handed hitters are going to make contact against Otani, and he's right-handed. And if lefties are going to have a problem against him, I mean, right-handers, I don't think they got much of a shot. I know Marcus Simeon was able to break up the perfect game against Otani. But Mm -hmm. as a starter, he looks terrific. How long will this last? I do not know. But I was always curious on how the Angels were going to handle him offensively, and they're giving him DH spots, and he's batting the bottom of the lineup. I, I get why. You don't want to expose him too much. And all, all this guy's doing is just hitting clutch home runs. He hit a clutch game-tying home run off the reigning American League Cy Young Award, or, uh, award winner Corey Kluber. To tie the yeah. game against Cleveland, I mean it, it is that type of move. And then you get Kinsler and you get Cozart and you really solidify your infield defense. That I think people should buy on the Angels. I do think that the Angels are going to be a team that I th- will scare Houston. I don't think they're going to beat Houston, in American League West, but they're going to keep it tight in that division and not allow Houston to run away with it. And I do see the Angels going into the postseason. And you never know, man. I mean, if Mike Trout gets hot in the postseason, you you can't bitch around him anymore. He has protection, as you mentioned with Justin Upton. And Kinsler can still hit, and he's been there before. And this is a much deeper lineup. And and the Angels could be a dangerous team come the postseason. Now, obviously, we're just 10 games into the season, and we still got a long ways to go. Uh, But I do not see the Angels fading. And if you're looking for a team to buy, if you are a betting type, uh, I would put some money on the Angels. I would agree. I think they're...
1: Uh, if they can stay healthy with Upton, and I mean, Kinsler's on the DL right now, but if Cozart stays in the field, Pujols is just okay. And then the starting rotation is still kind of scary because this team still doesn't have the assets to make a deadline deal for a top two or three guy to add to their playoff push. But... Outside of that, like it's still just a roster that's clearly just going to be just having Mike Trout, a uh, good Justin Upton, who is just like the most consistent outfielder in baseball year after year, where his numbers mm-hmm. just never really change. It's uh, nice to have on a team like the Angels. So I do want to counter. Uh, I would agree with you. I do. I, oh, I do,
2: do want to counter something that you mentioned that the Angels don't have the assets to make a big midseason acquisition, and I do think you're right. But looking at the American League, who does? Maybe the New York, definitely the New York say, Yankees. The Yankees
1: definitely do. The Yankees Cliff definitely.
2: Do. Sitting there yeah. and they, have
1: a, they have young guys that they can move around. They, they, have, they, they can make moves that they need to. Yeah. Which
2: I, they might because Stanton may never actually hit again, <laughs> depending on who you read and watch these days. I think the Yankees need starting pitching. I don't think they can really trust CC Sabathia. I think that's pie in the sky type of thinking from Brian Cashman. I think that the Yankees will eventually get a Michael Falmer from Detroit. Or even a Chris Archer within the division from Tampa Bay. I do think the Yankees will get their ace mid-season. But I don't see the Twins making a move like that. I don't see the Indians making a move like that. Houston doesn't the need Indians to move that. Indians may back. have to. I actually think the Indians are a sneaky team that has to like
1: go above and beyond right now at the deadline. Because your team, the White Sox, they'll... They're coming. They're not coming this year. I mean, the Royals are going to be terrible for the next what, like seventy five years, uh, <laughs> depending on how you feel about their farm system and their start. But I, the Twins are there, and the Twins are going to be competitive uh, for the foreseeable future. And then the Tigers are, I mean, they're still pretty bad. But that's the only thing that's really helping the Indians right now is that they still play in just a garbage division. And I think mm-hmm. there'd be a lot more. Uh, concern surrounding their start and just their situation like Kluber and everything else where I I am a little because going into this season, I've been kind of bullish on them. And I, I don't know when you talked about like the three out of five making the playoffs, I I could see one of the teams falling out would be the Indians. I really could, but they're still in one now mode. They're still a really good team, really good manager and everything else. But there's just something about going year after year and not reaching the top where it's just like, it could fall out and it, things could go a different way really fast. And I don't know. I'm pretty confident in the uh, the Astros. That's a, I know it's quite the take. And the Angels look good. And the Red Sox are obviously off to a great start. And we'll touch on them in a little bit. But, yeah, I don't know. If you look around, it's like, who else really fits the bill of a team that could possibly underachieve and really fall out of it? And the Indians make a lot of sense to me. It's just that division is so
2: bad that they, they still just might sneak in anyway. The two teams... Whose records are going to be the most inflated and you have to take a grain of salt with them are the Cleveland Indians and the Minnesota Twins because they're Mm -hmm. going to beat up on Detroit, Chicago and Kansas City. Those three teams are very close as far as quality and that quality is those three teams are probably going to be in the top five drafting in the 2019 Major League Baseball draft. I think those three will be part of the five worst teams in all of Major League Baseball. Uh, and that's only going to boost Cleveland's win total. It's only going to boost the Minnesota Twins' win total. Cleveland's just not hitting at the moment. They're the worst Mm -hmm. offense in all of Major League Baseball. Obviously, I think that's going to change. They got Jose Ramirez. They got Francisco Lindor. They got Edwin Encarnacion. Jason Kipnis uh, maybe still has something left in the tank. I don't know about Michael Brantley. He's got to stay healthy, and that's been a big issue for him. I'm a believer in Bradley Zimmer. In center field, the Indians really never do address right field. And I don't know. Yonder Alonso had, that, I was going to say Alonzo was one that uh, it, it was a head scratcher,
1: like moving on from Santana for him just didn't, it I, was it cheap. felt weird at the time. Yeah,
2: it was cheap. I mean, Santana signs a three year, $60 million deal and the Indians get Alonzo for two years, 14 million. Obviously they, they played the money card. They went cheap hoping that Alonzo can have a similar season he did last year. But I think a lot of people forget all of Alonzo's production was in the first half. After the All-Star game, uh, he didn't provide anything. I mean, when he got traded to Seattle, I don't think he made a big impact whatsoever for the Mariners. And their futile attempt to try to make it into the postseason one of these days. I mean, they've had a long drought. Uh, Can we talk about the Mariners really quickly? I mean, I guess. I feel
1: so bad for Mariners fans. Like they already have the drought, and now the Angels are on the rise, and now they have two cornerstone, just all time talents on the Angels. Now they have the Astros, who are just a behemoth that aren't going anywhere anytime soon. Like there's no path to the Mariners getting
2: to the playoffs now. Like that's over. No, you're right. There is. They got Ichiro. I mean, the Mariners are going to be an 81 and 81 team, oh, God, and and they're going to have Ichiro's farewell tour. And I, I think you know if that may be fun for Mariners fans. I I agree with you I don't think there's any hope. I mean, Felix Hernandez is not turning back the clock chase. He's just not. No, I think he's toast. I like James Paxton, uh, but he, and he's got to stay healthy. And, but I do think he could be very effective. And that bullpen for Seattle Has some flamethrowers in it. Oh, yeah. Nicasio,
1: Diaz, and all those guys. Yeah, Yeah.
2: absolutely. Absolutely. So I think they're a 500 team, but I agree with you. I, I don't think there's anything that really helps them put them over the top against a team like the Angels or the Astros. I think the Astros and Angels are a cut above Seattle. Seattle, though, could get some help, though, as far as wins facing teams like Oakland and Texas, even though I thought Texas and Oakland would be playing better this year. Uh, what- uh, Texas is gearing up for the massive sell-off. I think we're about to see, like, Cole Hamill at
1: the deadline. I yeah. think we're it's going to get really bad in Texas. The a- The A's are interesting because they have so many good young pieces that I really like. Chapman, Olsen, all those guys, like, they're coming. I
2: thought they could be sneaky. They, they maybe can. They still can be sneaky in the sense that they could go on like a 10-game winning streak at any moment. Yeah. And really shake up the American League and really catch some eyes uh, throughout the they American League, especially the West. Teams. Yeah, they could. They and could make it difficult.
1: Like, yeah, because I think they're kind of in that Blue Jays-Orioles boat just on a different level, like, I mean, obviously the Orioles and the Blue Jays are spending, but it's more of just, like, no one really thinks that they can really challenge for a playoff spot over the course of a full season, but they still have enough firepower that they're going to be a potential problem. Like, I love Piscotty. I love that deal for him. I still, like, I'm Chris Davis is awesome, and I think this rotation is still, it's young, but it's going to get better. Like, Chapman is just really, really good. I just... I think they're coming. I think the A's, it would not surprise me, like you said, if they went on a 10-game run, if they really made things interesting or made a wild card team sweat, that the A's uh, might eventually um, close the gap and get close there.
2: Yeah, I think that time is coming soon for Oakland A's fans. I think they just need to figure out where they're going to be playing baseball in the near future and find a location for their new stadium. Uh, so I, I think with the American League West, I, you're looking at a two-team race there, In the American League Central, I think that's a two-team race there, and the American League East. I know Boston is off to a terrific start. I still think they're going to miss the postseason. They're the oh, one. Wow. They're the one team that I thought out of the three out of the five, we're not going to make it into the postseason. And hmm. the reason is that I don't trust the starting rotation after Chris Sale. I don't okay. trust David Price. I don't trust Rick Priscillo. I don't know what the status is with Steven Wright. I don't know who their fifth starter is. And if at the, any point in this season, if it's just Chris Sale and then four other guys because David Price is on the DL and. Porcillo goes in the DL uh, Boston could be in trouble uh, because I think Toronto's got really good depth. And I like Toronto starting rotation. Their bullpen is a little bit iffy trying to get the ball to Roberto Asuna. Um, mm-hmm. But as soon as you get to Asuna, you're in really good hands. The Yankees have a terrific bullpen. They need a starting pitcher. They got the prospects to do it. And I think they will. And that will give the Yankees a boost. And, and That's when I look at Boston and say, you know, man, they're doing really well. And if they didn't blow the one to nothing lead going to the eighth inning on opening day against Tampa Bay, where they gave up three runs at the bottom of the eighth inning, where we're talking about the Boston Red Sox being nine and oh. And my last statement sounds really stupid, and it may sound really stupid at the moment uh, for a team that's eight and one and is tied with Houston for the best record in the American League. But again, while they are off to a terrific start, I just worry about their starting pitching if it can hold together. If they can hold together, then yeah, I can see Boston winning the American League East. I don't think it will. And I see the Yankees and the Blue Jays being ahead of Boston where Boston misses the postseason. Toronto is in that wildcard game against the Angels and the Yankees win the East.
1: The Blue Jays are interesting. I mean, they're off to a great start. Um, I'm still really concerned about Donaldson. Tillowitski, like, started the season on the DL, and they still have a lot of health question marks. But, you know, Vlad Guerrero Jr. is coming, so that's fun. But the Red Sox, I I keep thinking about Michael Bauman's piece on the ringer that kind of uh, highlighted just... This sad situation for the red Sox coming into the season where they built this great empire they have drafted really well they've flipped their assets really well dombrowski's done a really good job and they have all this talent you have mookie bets you have all these guys and then you have the big time hitters. you went out and you signed jd martinez um to a much more team-friendly deal than john carlos stan and you still like everything just looks right and this is just a good team and like everything makes sense it the team should be really good but at the same time they don't have the firepower or the assets that the Yankees have and they um the Yankees will eventually get to the point where the Red Sox are where they'll like eventually these prospects are going to run out and they're going to be stuck with the team they have that's where the Red Sox are right now basically but that team is still really good and I think they're still going to hit enough to like even like you said with the question marks with the bullpen and the starting pitching I think they're just going to hit well enough to make the playoffs at the very least again
2: okay I mean, again, if they can stay healthy, if David Price can stay healthy and be effective, if Porcillo can maybe capture a little bit of his magic from a couple of years ago when he won the Cy Young, I can see where you're coming from. And I would agree with you that, yeah, Boston could win the American League East. I'm just not confident in those two things happening. And I think the opposite is going to happen. And that's why before the year started, I have the Yankees winning the division and the Blue Jays being one of the surprise teams in 2018 and earning a wild card spot. As a lifelong
1: supporter of the Baltimore Orioles are actually okay. Uh, they were my... <laughs> I can't quit them as long as Machado's on this team. And I've gone back and forth on that with uh, whether or not they should trade Machado at the deadline, whether or not... I, I still think when you're the Orioles and you get a, a prospect like Machado and he's just as good as he is and he's just been awesome at short to start the year and everything, but... He, uh I would not trade him and I would still go like, I, like the Alex Cobb stuff made sense and I would still keep going. Like, don't blow it up, Baltimore. Keep trying. Keep making everybody lose their minds because the Orioles just, they never go through a full rebuild. They're never really contending. I, I'm ready for them to go over the hump. So like your Blue Jays um, optimism, I share that with the Orioles. I'll never quit them as long as Machado is an Oriole. They can
2: hit. I mean, there's no doubt about it. Yeah. Baltimore they can hit and that was a good series they had with the New York Yankees and maybe their bullpen will help out. I mean, Dylan Bundy is probably your American League Cy Young award winner uh, after the first week of the season uh, on, (laughs) on how well he's pitching. Uh, That's a good rotation. When you think about it with Alex Cobb,
1: Tillman, Gaussman, Kashner and Bundy, like that's, I mean, the Red Sox would love to have a rotation
2: like that. Uh, we'll see. We'll see. We'll see how how long it lasts. I'm not confident Baltimore. I had Baltimore, Finishing fourth in the division uh before the season began. I could see that. Yeah. I could see anywhere from
1: fourth to first.
2: <laughs> I I just they could the, surprise
1: they're so weird.
2: They, they are like, very the weird. Are weird. They're incredibly weird. Like ever since Buckshaw Walter has taken over the team, it has been like 96 win season. Sixty six yeah. win season. Ninety six win <laughs> season. Like and it just feels you just like you never know. Exactly. You never know when he just works his magic and gets his team to perform well during the entire regular season, I will say this, the one team that I think could possibly pull off a Manny Machado mid season deal would be the St. Louis Cardinals. Hmm. Watch out but if for If you're that. the
1: Orioles. Would you do it?
2: You know, it depends on what you get, get back. Get it depends what you get pick. back from the Cardinals. It really does. Okay. It really does. If you can get a, near ready major league player in return and you know that you're 10 15 games back of whoever is leading in the division might as well because what you're going to get a draft pick back for manny machado uh you can do better than that
1: okay well you got jones who's probably gonna be gone the year after and i mean the chris davis deal is not great <laughs> um but yeah, I don't know what they do there. I just, if you, I would just ride it out and I would be buyers at the deadline this year. I would keep Machado, do what I can to shore up the rotation, add another bullpen guy, like maybe make a, an addition at third if you can find it or another outfield guy. But I, I don't know if I'm the Orioles, I just ride this out because you're not, you don't get guys like Machado very often. And I want, I would see it through if I were them, even if there was a really good deal on the table. I would just do that, and if you lose Machado to the Yankees or whoever this winner, then you blow it up, trade Jones, and then just really go through a full, painful rebuild. That's what I would do.
2: Okay. But you just signed Alex Cobb to a three-year deal. You, oh, you did. Not great. <laughs> <laughs> Not great for Alex. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it would be interesting. But, um, Baltimore's in a sticky spot right now with the whole Manny Machado thing, without a doubt.
1: Well, I made the joke. um, I had Matt Cerrone on last week of Mets blog and we were talking about the Mets and uh, one of the things that I mentioned in the pod was I was like, I called Matt Harvey future Baltimore Orioles starting pitcher Matt Harvey because I am convinced that guy is signing with he, the Orioles are going to offer him. I some could see that deal. Honestly, he I is could a see that future Oriole. <laughs> he is Oriole written all over him. So um, they have that to look forward to when Machado has gone. They'll have Matt Harvey to keep this whole <laughs> thing rolling. Jonathan Shoup and Matt Harvey get excited. Baltimore. Um, the Red Sox we talked about, and I just mentioned the Mets. I, I don't even have to ask this question. I have it written down in my notes, but I don't think I need to ask because I know how you feel about it based on your Red Sox cynicism thus far. Um, Who do you believe in more right now, the Red Sox hot start or the
2: Mets? The Mets, actually, because I have the Mets making the postseason this year. A lot of people uh, raised an eyebrow when I said that the Mets were going to be a wildcard team and facing St. Louis, who I think is going to be the other wildcard team. In the National okay. League, I believe in Mickey Cal- uh, Callaway, uh, who took yeah. over as the manager for the Mets. He was a longtime pitching coach for the Cleveland Indians, and he did such a terrific job with the progression on that Cleveland Indian staff. And he understands working through injuries. Carlos Carrasco would get hurt often. Danny Salazar would get hurt often. And when the Indians went to the world series against the Cubs and they had a three game to one lead. It just, it, that rotation was Corey Kluber and overmatched Trevor Bauer and Josh Tomlin. Like that team had no business chase to have a three game to one lead over the Cubs in the world series with that rotation. Um, but they did. And he just does such a terrific job with starting pitching also the bullpen as well. And what's the strength of the Mets? starting pitching. And I think he is a terrific addition to be the manager for the Mets. So thumbs up Mets fans. You got a good one. I think he's going to make Noah Syndergaard even better. I think he's going to be able to maintain the workload for this starting pitching staff. I think he's going to pull the right triggers out of the bullpen. He just needs help offensively. And if the Mets can be league average offensively, I thought they could scare Washington and earn one of those wild card spots in the postseason, and what we have seen is that they went into Washington and swept the Nationals. And I watched the full game
1: Saturday, mm-hmm. and let me say, one thing: Bryce Harper did something that was just absurd. I mean, he's already raking the start of the year. I think he has like six home runs to just five strikeouts already. So Bryce Harper, um, it, the early returns are he's going to be a very wealthy man uh, this winter. That uh, sources say he's going to get paid very nicely based on this hot start. But um, I love Bryce Harper, but he pulled one. Stephen Matz, uh, I think this was he had just been pulled. So I think it was like the fifth or sixth inning or whatever, and he pulled one. Oh, it was just an outside fastball, way outside of the zone, and it, he just crushed it to left field. Like, but he knew instantly, and just the amount of strength and bat swing, like he was just, he's a freak of nature. And he's going to keep them alive. And the Nationals are clearly hurting from uh, the Daniel Murphy absence. But Anthony Rendon got tossed (laughs) in one of the most ridiculous situations I have ever seen in baseball. Like, he just paused, didn't say anything. And the Mets broadcast booth, who I was watching through, Keith Hernandez especially was just dumbfounded. They like he didn't say anything and the ump just tossed him for nothing and then uh Davy Martinez came out and uh lost his mind and then he got tossed. But I encourage anyone who has not seen uh Anthony Rendon's uh ejection in this game uh to go do so. So it was a really fun series but uh what I saw from the Mets though, a nobody should ever run on Juan Lagares. Don't know why people are still doing that. <laughs> True. And two, they really need Michael Conforto back because that lineup is just um, I think he's back this week, but um, or he's healthy now. But you just need—they really need him because this lineup outside, like, it just gets really weak as you get closer to the bottom. But Travis Arno looked good, and he's off to a good start. And they need him to be really uh good at the five spot. But dribble Cabrera has been good, and he's flirted like he's at leadoff sometimes. He'll be at the five spot some other times, but he's been really consistent for them. But uh, the Mets. Their lineup is never going to be like, oh, God, here comes Frazier. Here comes Jay Bruce. Uh, What are we going to do here? But when you have guys like Steven Matz who look great in that outing on uh, Saturday – and you have Syndergaard, and you have Harvey, who um has gotten off to a pretty solid start, and you still have... And Zach Wheeler, I believe, is pitching this week, so he just got called up. So the five aces situation might be coming true for the Mets finally this year. Um, And I think they revamped their training staff, and they're healthy. And mm-hmm. it turns out when they have a healthy pitching staff and a healthy Conforto, they might be a pretty good team. I mean, this was a World Series team just a few years ago.
2: Right, and that's and we also didn't mention Jacob deGrom. I mean, yeah, I, I that's why I have the Mets into the postseason because I think Mickey Calloway will find a way to keep this pitching staff healthy all year. And that, that is a tremendous advantage over a lot of teams in the national league. There's not many teams in the national league, maybe the Cubs and the nationals that can match the firepower from the starting rotation that the Mets have. And again, it's been really relying on defense to start the year uh, with their tremendous start to 2018 in their first eight games, they've only allowed 22 runs. And some people would say, well, that's not sustainable. Uh, Maybe it is. Maybe they're a team that it's incredibly difficult to score three runs a game against and and chase If they can do that, if they can limit teams to around three runs a game, you don't need much offense uh, to be a winning ball club. You, all you need to do is get to four or get to five runs in the scoreboard. Uh, Mm -hmm. And it, if you can do that early, if you could jump on a starting pitcher and score three or four runs in the first couple of innings, then it's just going to make it that much easier for your starting rotation. It's going to be that much easier managing the bullpen for the Mets. Again, they got to stay healthy. Uh, but uh, again, I I'm, I'm riding the Mets train. I, I think the Mets before the year, we're going to make it to the postseason. I believe in their hot start. I think they're going to give the Washington nationals a tough time. I still think the Washington Nationals are going to win the National League East, but the Mets are gonna make it tough on them.
1: I don't know like I'm a little concerned and I wonder if there's like a post dusty issue there um I think Dave Martinez is obviously a very like he he's he's a, i we'll see like it's not as bad as the Gabe Kapler stuff that we've seen thus far um but uh I don't know. I think the Mets have a real shot of winning the NL East,
2: and I don't know. Is that a disaster if the Nationals don't yes. win the NL East but still get a wild card? Okay. Yes, it is. Well, maybe. I mean, if the Nationals get the wild card and they win that game, let's let's put it this way, Chase. If the Nationals do not make it to the National League Championship Series, it is a disaster. Okay. They have to make it to the Championship Series. They have to win a playoff series. There's no team that has more pressure on them right now than the Washington Nationals. Yeah. Because if they don't succeed, they're going Parker's to lose gone. the face of the franchise.
1: I think they might lose him anyway. And that's what my concern.
2: Would you pay him? Like, what he's going
1: to get? I just don't know if the Nationals are going to do it, even if they did get to the World they Series.
2: They would be. Like, I, but Chase, they're that team that would be like, here's a 20-year contract. We're going to pay you $400 million over the next 20 years. We're going to upfront a large chunk of that, let's say 10 years, 350 million. And then after 10 years, we're going to pay you small amounts. They're they're that team. That's what they do with Max Scherzer. And I'm sure the nationals ownership will try to do everything they can to keep Bryce Harper. But if the nationals do not make it to the national league championship series, the very least, then yeah, I I think that is going to be a very big disappointment because that fan base I, they've been patient long enough and they've seen their team get to the division series and just fall flat on their face. They have to get over this hump. Can I just
1: say, I really hope Harper does end up leaving the nationals, but for a team, like, I hope he got, this is my dream scenario. If um, I could craft my own Bryce Harper narrative for this winter, it would be, I mean, he is a Vegas guy. Um, he is a West coast dude. And I don't like, We don't know how much he likes being on the East Coast and everything else, but can you imagine, like, he's from Vegas, an Oakland team is moving to Vegas, the Raiders, what if the A's finally open their checkbook to Bryce Harper? What if he signed with the A's this offseason? I am 100% here for the A's finally acting like a team in San Francisco in the Silicon Valley market and just decided to one day just this one time we're going to spend on a superstar and just wrote a blank check to Bryce Harper. That's what I want. I want Bryce. Harper. I'm starting right now in this podcast, Bryce Harper, future a
2: the team. That's probably more likely to do that would be the San Francisco Giants, not the yeah. Oakland athletics, but they're, they're pretty strapped right now. Like this, I don't, it not does like not matter. Team. The luxury yeah. tax does not matter when it comes to Bryce Harper. It does not matter. The Yankees will go after Harper. I don't want him to go. To the, the Dodgers will go after Harper. I could see mm. the Giants going after what Harper. About the
1: Angels? Let's put him in there with.
2: Uh, oh, my God. That's, that's just stupid. Like.
1: <laughs> That'd be fun. Or what if the Derek Jeter trolls everybody and decides to spend next offseason? My for, brain uh, would Bryce melt. Harper? My brain would actually melt.
2: As a matter of fact, I would advise Bryce Harper not to do that because. You can't trust whoever runs the Marlins. You just can't. But I I know John Heyman of FanRack Sports is putting out posts and the team's most likely to get Bryce Harper and blah, 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 blah. But Wait, the, who does he have right now? I, he's got like the uh. Cubs up there. He's got the Red Sox up there. Mm. I, I see the Nationals still being in the mix. I, I still see the Yankees. I see the Dodgers and the team that I think a lot of people are not discussing but he most definitely would be in the running, would be the San Francisco Giants.
1: Hmm. Okay. Um, back to the Mets a little bit. Their, like their outfield set, like Comforto Cespedes, who is off to a good start, which is important for them. They need him to stay healthy and uh, energetic and just stay uh, consistent for a full year. That would be huge for them. And then you have Jay Bruce, obviously, in right, uh, where they could upgrade is just I don't know if they can get somebody at short like Rosario's fine but I would like to see them add somebody like in the in the middle of the infield or maybe a first baseman because I don't love Flores and Gonzalez there but I, I'm interested to see what they do uh, at the deadline because they really don't have that many holes and it turns out when you have five dominant starters and then Vargas waiting in the wings if one of them goes down even though Vargas is the one that's down right now uh
2: you're in good shape right the Mets are in good shape again it's all about limiting teams on how many runs they're going to score and if that offense can just be league average, uh, I think the Mets are going to be a playoff team.
1: Who are some of your biggest early
2: season surprises? Like
1: it could be players, teams, what what a surprise you thus far?
2: Pittsburgh, Pittsburgh starting 7-2. Yeah. Seven, 7 and 2. That that's a surprise. The Dodgers starting okay. the year 3 and 6. And it's allowed teams like San Francisco, which poor San Francisco, not having Madison Bumgarner until June is a huge loss. And to has po- Joe Panic still scored all of their runs, or is that- <laughs> <laughs> well? No, Andrew McCutcheon had a walk off home run, I know for that much okay, for the Giants. Good. The thing with the Giants is, is that they have 10 games against the Dodgers in April and. More than half the games they will face against Los Angeles Dodgers this year, they're not going to have their best starting pitcher in Madison Bumgarner. And to quote Hawk Harrelson, you can't win a division in April, but you can lose it. And I was really concerned with the San Francisco Giants. I, I thought they could be a team to compete for a wild card spot for the postseason in the National League this year. But my mind changed losing Madison Bumgarner for the first two months because I just didn't think the Giants would be able to go toe-to-toe against the Dodgers. So far, I'm wrong. The Giants are holding ground. They're 4-4. Four and four. The Dodgers are having the worst start it's in like 42 years. That's been a surprise, that not having Seager and not having Justin Turner. We understand the Dodgers have great depth, but those are two all-stars that they are missing, and it is hurting the Dodgers right now, especially offensively, and they need to get those two guys back because all of a sudden – if the Dodgers struggle until Seeger and Turner come back, you're going to give hope to a team like the diamondbacks. You're going to give hope to a team like the Rockies and you keep teams lingering around. They're going to start believing that they can compete against you. So I think the Dodgers right now at three and six, that Hill is going to be a little steeper than I think most thought would be and getting on top of the national league West and staying on top of the national league West. I think they're going to, They're going to have some hurdles to get through. And I know some people had them as a popular World Series pick. I don't have them going into the World Series uh, just because I think that pendulum swung over to the Cubs way by signing you Darvish. I think the Cubs will win the National League pennant and face the Yankees in the World Series. Uh, But but the surprise for me right now is the Dodgers and how much they are struggling. And uh, if Kenley Jensen, if there's something more wrong with him, and there is a health reason on why he is losing velocity on his fastball, then the Dodgers are very, very vulnerable. And we could see a surprise National League West champion this year.
1: I was listening to Dave Schoenfeld on the uh, Baseball Tonight podcast, I think it was a week ago, talking about Jansen, and only asked him about it, and something I think they talked about was that this is common for pitchers in that situation where it's just taking them a little bit longer. Like they're not concerned. They expect the velocity to come back and this has happened before. So they're not like Zach Greinke has had that before and it's come back, but uh, there's been a lot of pitchers who have struggled with velocity and it's ended up coming back a few weeks later, but it just takes time to get back into that rotation. I'm more surprised at how Kershaw's pitched. He's 0-2 right now. Um, Obviously not a great start and Alex Woods on the DL, Rich Hill, uh look good. I watched uh the Dodgers game with Rich Hill when he was pitching where um another great game where Joe Panic was uh the star of the show. But um it's I agree with him, the Dodgers that they are surprising right now, but Oh well I just got an Amber alert on my phone, so that was cool, and just I am glad this is not a video podcast because I just almost jumped out of my seat. Um They're still hitting well, like Grindal is still doing well, like if Seager is one of your biggest issues <laughs> offensively right now, who's batting 206 uh, as of this writing. like I- I'm not really concerned about them. I mean, Jock Peterson still can't hit, and Puig is still uh, struggling through 43 plate appearances. But I'm just not really worried about their bats. I think they're going to figure it out. But also, if I'm an NL team, I'm kind of concerned at this. Slow start for them because they're going to be, I think they'll be active. And then you're like, oh, no, what are the Dodgers going to do with this slow start? Who are they going to go for? Who are they going to target to get things back on track? Um, What I think they really need more than anything is just to play the Padres soon.
2: (laughs) Well, be careful what you wish for. I think San Diego is not going to be an easy out. Did you see the way they lost this week? Yeah, I did. <laughs> the, other <day>. I mean,
1: <laughs> the pop fly. As as a Incredible. White Sox
2: fan who has been arguing with Royals fans for years about how overrated Eric Hosmer is, for that to happen to him, oh yes, it brought some joy to my life. Wow, brutal. Um, yeah, Pir-
1: I mean the Pirates, the Padres, man, I, I just they're brutal. They're, I mean, coming. They still have they're coming. They're ask- coming. How many years are they still coming? Like we I get they have I I mean depending on who you read I think they're a number 1 and number 2 farm system in baseball right now but
2: I give them I don't know. 3 years they're going to be dangerous. 3 years. 3.
1: Years. I think they're 3 years away from being 3 years away. They're like the Bruno Caboclos of <laughs> Major League Baseball. Um yeah, I don't know the Pirates I don't think it's going to last. Oh, it's not going to last. No, it's not going to last.
2: They will fade. But, you know, it's a surprise. You know, good story for Pittsburgh. Congrats. You beat up on the Cincinnati Reds. You're 7-2. and two. Uh, Yeah, I mean, Can they've I scored 58 runs so far this year. It's a good story because I felt bad
1: for those fans losing McCutcheon and just this team kind of Going back into a painful
2: rebuilding phase after. Well, I don't know if it's so much of a rebuilding phase, maybe reloading. They have a solid farm system. They just needed these guys to play up to their potential. I mean, I I think Josh Bell is going to be a monster. And Polanco can hit and Marte if he doesn't, you know, if he stays off the PEDs. I think Marte and Polanco is a great one-two combo. Uh, They're giving Colin Moran an opportunity at third base when he lost that opportunity with the Houston Astros. Obviously, to Alex Bregman. He is hitting right now. Uh, But Talion and Williams and Kuhl, uh, you know, that and even Glasnow. If Glasnow can become a starting pitcher for Pittsburgh, uh, you know, they would be a tough out if they got to 500, I think that's a huge accomplishment. Uh, But I don't think that the, the pirates are in a rebuilding phase. I think that they're more of a reloading phase. And by moving Andrew McCutcheon, you give an opportunity, maybe like a Corey Dickerson, as they signed uh, into the fold. And, you know, right now, Pittsburgh is just hitting very well. Offensively, they're on a tremendous start right now. Again, like I mentioned, 58 runs in nine games. Uh, That that's, that's that's a pretty good job. And uh, if they if this young pitching staff, I mean if they can hold their ground, they they could be someone that surprises because this offense is sneaky good. It'll sneak up on you and they can score runs uh, in bunches. But you mentioned that the Mets need middle infield help. If the mm-hmm. pirates fade, I wouldn't be surprised. Josh Harrison, if, if they make a deal for Josh Harrison, yep, absolutely. He's, he feels like a future Met. That's perfect for them too.
1: Yeah, and he was already like he was upset at their off season choices anyway. Like there was some rumblings where he was not thrilled with what was going on around them. Um, but uh, yeah, that would that makes perfect sense. Can I say the on the flip side, a team that's gotten off to a horrible start that I think is going to come back and flirt with five hundred this year? The Rays, no. Yeah, no, it's happening. No, they, no, no, uh, no, 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 no. It's gonna happen. No, I'm no, telling no, you. No, no, no. Chris Archer is gonna be a ray full season. Like they are going to. Chris Archer is gonna hitting. get
2: his butt traded in July. I don't think so. Yeah, I do. Like
1: everyone's struggling to hit right now for them. Like because they suck. Going to keep Tampa Bay sucks.
2: Tampa Bay is going to compete with the Miami Marlins for the worst record in Major League Baseball. I don't think so. Yeah, they're I, gonna be I,
1: annoying. I, they're gonna come back. Like CJ Crone is gonna like he's gonna start hitting. I think, Chase. They're Harley. they're
2: going with a three man starting rotation. It's not great. <laughs> I mean, and they <sighs> no team got soccer punched more with injuries during spring training than the Rays. I mean, yeah, they had like Brent Honeywell was available. You know, if they didn't lose like three pitchers in spring training. Then, yeah, I would say, you know, I agree with you. The Rays still could make a comeback. No. No. They have a lot of first-rounders in no. the starting rotation right now. I think... uh No. Chris, I don't know. Chris Archer's going to finally get moved.
1: I don't think he is. I really think they're just going to keep him hostage for the rest of
2: his career. That's mean. That's borderline <laughs> rule.
1: I mean, I'd like him on the Braves, but then again, I don't want the Braves to get sidetracked from trading for future Brave J.D. Ilmuto. So... um <laughs> He's the one, like the Braves have no catchers right now, just as an FYI. Like they're all, they're all, they're all hurt. I'm a big Tyler Flowers fan
2: Mm -hmm. and yeah, it sucks that he's hurt because he had a really good year for them last year.
1: Can you explain to me how he turned into a really good catcher once he got moved for the Braves after like 10 years
2: of mediocrity in Chicago? You know, I don't know. I really don't know. He was really working well on his framing. It's just offensively, it wasn't there at all. Uh, with the White Sox. All of his value was defensively, and he had a great rapport with Chris Sale. And, you know, the White Sox catching wise has just been lacking since they parted ways with Tyler Flowers. I think getting the Wellington Castillo in the offseason will finally allow the White Sox to bounce back at that yeah. position. Uh, But, yeah, ever since Flowers went back to Atlanta and he's been hitting the ball in combination with his very good job of stealing strikes and framing and working with the pitching staff, I mean, he had a great year last year. It's just uh, disappointing that he's hurt. Well, there you go. Josh,
1: this has been a lot of fun. I'm glad we were able to touch base and talk some baseball. I'm glad baseball is back.
2: I am, too. I am, too. It would be interesting where everything is from a month from now. Yeah, I, it's going to be fun, especially when the Rays are back in wildcard contention. <laughs> no, <they> can, no. <laughs> no, Tampa Bay Rays fans, you might as well start researching the 2019 Major League Baseball draft because this team is not good.
1: There you go. Um, Josh, we can find you on Twitter at Sox Machine underscore Josh. We can listen to you because you are the host of the Sox Machine podcast, so go check that out. Every White Sox fan, even if you're not a White Sox fan you want to get more information on what's going on with the White Sox and – You just are looking to see what's going on with Mikado. Um, Josh, this
2: is always fun. Uh, Let's talk again soon. Yep, absolutely. Thank you so much, Chase, for having me on.
1: Thanks, Josh. And that'll do it for today's episode of the Chase Thomas Podcast. I just want to remind you guys, if you like today's episode and you are subscribed on Apple Podcasts or iTunes, I would really appreciate it if you could take a second leave lead the show a five-star rating and a review. If uh, you're not an Apple Podcast listener, Remember, you can find the show on Spotify, TuneIn Radio, SoundCloud, Stitcher, uh, Google Play, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Uh, be sure to check out chasethomaspodcast.com, where you can access all of my previous episodes and also find all my writing. I'm writing there fairly often. And also follow me on Twitter at thomas And like the Facebook page at facebook.com slash writer. Uh, thank you for your support, and we'll be back Another episode very soon. Thanks, guys.
0: Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history.